0: Hi everyone, this is Arpin Parikh and I'm really thrilled to have Lauren Lisher, a 2009 Wharton MBA grad who is now Chief Product Officer of Commercialization for Mount Sinai Health Partners as my podcast guest. Mount Sinai Health Partners' commercialization team has grown to serve over 250,000 lives since it launched in 2016 with product lines including health centers, specialty care programs, navigation services, and preferred network insurance partnerships. Prior to joining Mount Sinai, Lauren held leadership roles, including co-founder, at a number of healthcare technology firms focused on improving experiences for patients, clinicians, and health systems. So first of all, thanks again, Lauren, for agreeing to come onto the podcast. We're really excited. Thanks for having me. For sure. So, to kick things off, can you give us a brief summary of your career path, both before and after Warden, and how you got here to Mount Sinai?
1: Sure, so I started my career off at the advisory board. Um, So it was coming out of undergrad, interested in going into consulting, actually through someone who ended up being a Wharton alum, um, got connected to the advisory board and started falling in love with healthcare um, sort of growth stage companies there. I took a brief hiatus um, from healthcare uh, and worked at a small consulting company since I was always interested in startups uh, that was actually focused on mutual fund companies, uh, which made me realize that they're important, but not my life passion. So that was a lot of what drove me back to Wharton actually was to transition back into healthcare and ultimately um, a classic recovering consultant, I would say, going from strategy to more execution orientation so i ended up spending uh post wharton about five years at mckesson so while i was at wharton i got really interested in healthcare technology Um, so this was you know basically 10 years ago coming out of school around the affordable care act time Um, a lot of really interesting things going on or a lot of speculation around what would be the future of healthcare and um, all the pair and provider convergence was really just starting. Um, so also got really interested in data analytics and how the and the pair provider convergence coming together. Um, started uh, part of my path all around doing some startups with large organizations. So while at McKesson, started the Commonwealth Health Alliance, which basically got most of the large EMR vendors to agree to share patient data um, and transcend you know, any particular EMR system. Um, sort of theme of my career and personal life of ultimately coming back through New York. Um, You had a great run at McKesson, um, but ultimately was looking to do something um, potentially outside of the the big company from an entrepreneurial perspective. Um, Took a role at Oxion Ventures, now known as Town Hall Ventures, um, and ended up actually starting another company with a large organization, um, this time Intermountain Healthcare, um, and so co-founded a company called Empiric Health that was looking at reducing variation in surgical services. So this was a tech-enabled service model. I think a theme you've seen in the industry um, that I certainly believe in is sort of the power of tech in combination with service versus assuming just giving providers in particular technology will (laughs) will make that work. but had uh, to so started and ran that, and then joined here um, at Mount Sinai a couple years ago now, um, in part to also build out a new venture that uh, Sinai had started, which was looking at how do you focus on. Um, Purchasers, specifically in the commercial populations, so looking at employers, unions, and direct-to-consumer as customers. So saw it as you know an interesting opportunity to do another version of a startup in another growth area of healthcare, um, and actually in New York, which was to that earlier theme, a nice, uh, nice cherry on top.
0: <laughs> nice. I think that's really interesting how your career path initially was kind of pushed along by changing like, the regulatory and political sphere with the ACA. I think it's something like, for my classmates to keep in mind, you know, we're going to be graduating in an election year as well. I think it will be interesting to see what happens over the course of the next year um, and how it might affect kind of the healthcare sector. Um, so I'd like to dive into sort of setting the stage with the hospital landscape here in New York before we get into Mount Sinai Health Partners mm-hmm. in particular. So you know, as someone who's practiced here in New York City and practiced in Mount Sinai, in fact, before I came down to Morton. I think it's pretty clear that the competitive landscape for hospitals here in New York is really cutthroat. I've seen that profit margins are slim, there's a lot of consolidation all in the market, and health systems here are continuously innovating new models of care. Can you give us your perspective on this hyper-competitive environment that Mount Sinai plays in in New York?
1: Yeah, the New York market is really interesting because I think, um, and relatively unique, I think, compared to a couple other markets in in the U.S., you know, certainly besides being the largest. um, I think one of the interesting dynamics is the number of um, not just quote-unquote top facilities, but, um, you know, the number of top academic medical centers. I think there's literally, you know, three or four top 15 within a few miles of each other. I think just to your point does create a a much more competitive dynamic than, frankly, you see in a lot of markets. Um, I think the other thing that's a, um, a happens everywhere but certainly is a very New Yorker thing is the love of self referring to what uh, mm-hmm. people define as their own version of the top so or the best mm-hmm. um, so there's a huge issue with self referrals self referrals to so specialists in particular um, as we get into population health you can imagine makes it <laughs> even more complicated um, and you know, the other thing I'd say that's interesting is, I think while there is this hyper-competitive environment, conversely I'd say, in some ways, a lot of the systems haven't been the most innovative relative to other, um, other systems in other markets in terms of thinking about innovation from a delivery perspective. So you see mm-hmm. typically a lot more of like the traditional fee-for-service, M&A kind of dynamics as how growth occurs here. Mm-hmm. Um, you can certainly get more into this, but I would say you know, in that, Mount Sinai has taken a relatively different approach. Um, you know, to, to cite two examples quickly, you know, one, we have are making a much more significant investment in a downtown ambulatory footprint versus rebuilding what um, was Beth Israel Hospital. Mm-hmm. So um, again, we're not the only ones nationally doing that, but a pretty different approach in New York of saying rather than rebuild an aging hospital, we're gonna tear it down and plow the capital into an ambulatory footprint largely Instead. Um, the second piece of it that gets a little into the pop health approach, which isn't really where most other academic medical centers in New York in particular have gone, um, we started about four years ago running a national ad campaign that said, you know, if our beds are filled, we failed. Um, so, pretty provocative for mm-hmm. a, a health Absolutely. system. And you know we have 6,000 providers, but you know, now eight different hospitals to say, you know, put a stake in the ground and say, we're really taking um, a pretty proactive um, and significant investment. In actually changing the way care is delivered, mm-hmm. um, so I think you know the New York market in general. There's some interesting wonky dynamics. Um, relatively conservative, um, with Mount Sinai and a couple others, I think leading the charge of trying to do things differently. Mm-hmm. You know, e- even with some of those challenges that New York and the population provide.
0: Yeah, I've definitely seen that self-referral theme play <laughs> out in New York City, and particularly in behavioral health and psychiatry. I think that tends yeah. to happen quite a bit. I think it's interesting though, because that seems to happen more for folks maybe who are either using commercial insurances or Mm self-paying. I'm not sure that's a phenomenon that, you know, occurs with folks in Medicare Medicaid, Despite the fact that that's a huge proportion of, sort of the healthcare dollars that get spent, like in New York and across the country, so I'm curious to hear kind of what your perspectives are on population health and how you see that in the traditional definition of Medicare and Medicaid.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, I think you know that's definitely where. So to the general point around population health in the in Medicare and Medicaid, I think that's certainly where you've seen nationally and even in New York, um, where there's been the most investment to date. I think you know, some obvious reasons being besides the the types of populations that just tend to be sicker and deal with that, it's been, um, so there's sort of that cost crisis coming even faster, even if commercial certainly is experiencing that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, certainly I think CMS has led the charge. From so, from the payer perspective, there's been um, you know still experimentation. If you think of readmission penalties and bundles and things like that, but mm-hmm. um, more of a proactive payer-led approach driving some of that innovation there relative to other spaces. Yeah. Um, but I will say it was interesting to your to the New York dynamic question. Um, we've even seen that when there are population health groups. Um, At large, we cover several hundred thousand lives across uh, both commercial risk-based deals as well as Medicare and Medicaid, and that self-referral problem actually transcends any of those particular populations. Obviously, I agree. It's probably even more acute, um, no pun intended, in some of the uh, commercial population. But I think that is so endemic into that competitive environment. Um, there's so there are so many different providers affiliated with so many different health systems in one area. You know, you think of the Upper East Side, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have multiple health systems to choose from. That I just think that mentality of staying within your network, so to speak, is um, and even some of like the HMOs in New York. The joke is they really it's like. They're, not that people understand HMOs and PPOs anyway, um, <laughs> or even some on the podcast, right, but that they effectively operate like a PPO here mm-hmm. anyway, um, both because of behavior as well as some of the open access plans design.
0: Interesting. So I'd like to dive into more about your role here at Mount Sinai Health Partners and you know, how that ties into sort of Mount Sinai's approach to population health. So going from co-founding a startup to leading a team in an integrated academic medical center is certainly quite a change. Can you tell us a bit about what that transition was like for you?
1: Yeah, it's been interesting, um, but maybe not as um, scary as I feared <laughs> in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, in some ways, this is really my, or it's definitely my third startup, and really the third startup that's probably more similar and different in that way in terms of starting something with a large organization um, pretty heavily involved. So that was Commonwealth at Relay Health, inside McKesson, um, even as we were starting Empiric Health, Intermountain Healthcare was very heavily involved. Um, So in many ways I would say this has felt more similar than different in terms of even though you know, I would wake up the month before I took this job in the middle of the night, fearing if I was getting too close to the sun by actually having spent you know 15 years around health systems and actually going inside of one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'd say largely that's been more more fear-based than the reality. Mm-hmm. Um, in part, I'd say, uh, you know, I think especially in academic medical centers, there is that understanding of research and innovation and really the investment in that. Um, so certainly, you know, with all due respect to medical research, it's different than business, different pace, um, different expectations. Um, so I won't say it's, it hasn't been without its challenges to do here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you had to start a business, I wouldn't necessarily say just start any business inside our system, <laughs> um, but I think it's been certainly better than I feared, and I think as we can get into, you know, some of what we're doing is differentiated by the fact that it has, deep connectivity to a health system. Yeah. So I think when you have those moments of inertia or um, you know feeling like you're trying to move a, a giant ship with your bare hands, um, those moments can help you get through that um, and can pull on some of those experiences and successes, I think, of doing it with large organizations before yeah. um, that somehow or sometimes can help um, get over those day to day
0: headaches. <laughs> yeah. So as the chief product officer uh, for this division, can you tell us a bit about some of the products that you oversee? and how you would characterize sort of your functional role
1: yeah. So, product for us is probably um, what I like to think of as maybe what should be the traditional definition of product, even though the term gets used uh, loosely to mean many different things. Yes. Um, so, by that I mean, you know, product for us is really looking at what our customer needs are. So, in this case, our customers are employers, um, consumers, or in, uh, unions, and so and the individuals across all three of those, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so, a lot of what my team does is you know, look at our customer needs, look at the market. Figure out how can we win in that market. Um, what's our strategy to enter that? So whether that's you know the build by partner type of analysis, mm-hmm. and then really take something from strategy through to execution. So we have um, other parts of our um, team that focus on the day-to-day operations and the customer pieces. Um, so of course product development is also a, an iterative process of working and getting feedback and evolving our product offering. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, my team's the one tasked with sort of figuring out what we're going to do, manage the P and L, and take from yeah. strategy to
0: execution. Yeah, so that's really great. So you not only get to work on the strategy, but also get to sort of operationalize and implement things and then see how they play out.
1: Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm biased, but I think it's fine. <laughs> <Nice>.
0: <laughs> yeah. So maybe diving a little bit further into some of those products mm-hmm. and some of the customers that you serve, one of those that you know we've certainly seen come on really strong in the New York City market in particular are sort of on-site health centers mm-hmm. at employers' locations. Uh, for example, the partnership Mount Sinai has with Credit Suisse or even a shared direct-to-consumer component. So for example, some of the work that Mount Sinai is doing with Hudson Yards. Can you tell us a little bit about how employers are thinking about you know, gaining value from working either directly with clinicians in a health system, or sort of t- directly contracting in partnership with their insurance plans.
1: Yeah. So one of our product lines um, is focused on health centers. And as you mentioned, we have really two models um, and sort of two versions of models you'll see in the market here and otherwise. One is kind of the traditional model that's been more on-site for large employers and dedicated. So Credit Suites is an example of that. Um, And then we also run um, near-site centers, Hudson Yards included, that has a membership-based model Mm -hmm. um, that also actually will have a consumer element but is really shared in that sense across multiple employers. Um, I think a lot of the slightly different maybe motivations in each model depending on employer side, but I think historically where a lot of um, companies, especially in New York, have seen the value is um, twofold. One is a bit of an amenity of how do we provide more things on-site or near-site as a benefit um, or as part of a broader benefits package to our employees but i think you know certainly a realization in that that um, especially with some types of firms in new york that time is money so i Mm -hmm. think there's lots of studies um you know across on-site health in, in general, that the faster you can get people back to work, the more you can keep them healthy, the easier it is to get access. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a benefit um, as well. Um, I think part of the interest that started to grow, and you're sort of seeing a second wave of buying in the space in general, um, is is an evolution from saying, okay, just having you know the the historical version of on-site health was having a nurse downstairs and thinking about how do you really take that beyond and sort of start to solve other pain points that are coming up, especially around cost. Um, So one of the big things that I think has really started to resonate with employers here and why we're getting um, an increasing amount of interest in Mount Sinai as a partner is a bit of that and. So thinking Mm -hmm. about, you know, how do you provide this as an amenity? How do you provide this um, with a broader breadth and depth of service than you typically see in on-site providers? So Mm -hmm. we're bring on you know select specialty care and things like that that are really hard for um, certain vendors to do on their own mm-hmm. um, and do it at a at a price point or do it in network so that's a huge sort of everybody wins type of thing that's yeah. another thing I really like about what we're doing that it's just it's not only the right thing but it's thinking about how is this the right thing for everyone yeah. um, so trying to do it you know in network um, trying to think about how do you maintain that high service level in a tech-enabled service level, but actually think about integrating that into your holistic care experience so that it's not just a siloed experience you get when you're at your office, but we can actually cover you where you live and work and your family as well.
0: Interesting, so a couple of follow-up questions that came to mind for me on that. You spoke a little bit about bringing some specialty care uh, mm-hmm. to employer sites as well, particularly some that might have been more difficult to access. Can you speak a little bit about like which ones either employers are asking for or you're finding can bring a lot of value for employers?
1: Yeah, so I think uh, certainly physical therapy has been one traditionally, so I think you know, transcending Different populations we serve. Musculoskeletal spend overall is, you know, I think about 15 to 20 percent of a lot of employer mm-hmm. spends, which is mind-boggling mm-hmm. um, to think about. So that's certainly one area um, that I think is, continues to be a need. If more traditional, certainly behavioral health, I would say, is probably the number one area um, that we get asked about. Okay. Um, I'm not just saying that because of your background, but uh, it's a huge area of growth. I mean, certainly in the industry, there's a Mm -hmm. lot of attention on it. Um, Complicated problem to solve, to be sure. Um, But I think it's interesting um, seeing how, and it's been helpful as a way to sort of reinforce the value we can provide. Certainly Mm -hmm. different onsite providers can, um, and companies can provide some of those services, but I think it's one of those areas because there's such an acute need. and not only on the in-network provider piece, but thinking about the breadth and depth of complexities that come up in it. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the areas that's really resonated for employers um, and consumers of realizing the value of having a health system behind you, that there's really you know a wide range, as you well know, of when you say behavioral health of the different types of things that sure. can come up and yeah. having a true provider behind you that can actually think about that or you know, God forbid you have something acute or a particular diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Typically that's not something um, most health centers or certainly vendors are really prepared to provide. Um, so that breadth and depth of service I think is something that resonates with people but certainly is a big, a big area of growth.
0: Yeah, I could definitely see how a company could see a lot of value you know, in bringing those specialty services on site. And the second question that I had was, you spoke about employers seeing one of the benefits of this model being sort of an amenity that they can provide or get, you know, give as a benefit to their employees, and also kind of the thought that time is money and they can save their employees from you know, having to leave the office or leave work to take care of medical appointments, and then sort of realizing that maybe they can also capture other sort of value from this as well. I wonder if when the companies first came to you, was this primarily an amenity slash efficiency play? and then they realize that there's other values for them to gain, or was that always something that they were thinking about, that back-end value like from a financial perspective?
1: Yeah, I think there's always a bit of both um, in most employers, but I think you know if you think about the market in the past five or 10 years in terms of how benefit structure has evolved, mm-hmm. I think most employers, um, if you really push them to it, I would say you know, the the biggest cost lever they had of rising healthcare costs, or the biggest lever they pulled, I maybe should say, in the past several years has been shifting costs to employees through mm-hmm. high deductible plans. Mm-hmm. And I think there's an increasing recognition that they got the benefit that they thought they could get from that and yeah. you know that's run out and so you hear these crazy stats and even this is true in New York too right of you know it's several thousand dollars which the most the vast majority of Americans couldn't afford if right. they had any type of healthcare care event occur to them so it's kind of we've already run out of that as an option in general and so mm. I think as much as in a competitive labor market um, benefits in the the true sense of that word is something that I think people want and sort of see almost as Um, an expectation at this point. I think at the same time, there's an increasing fear that there's only so much the employer can do to reduce costs, and Mm so very quickly that and, and I think where they see the value of us is that And I mentioned something else. I think what's interesting and part of why I came here was realizing Mount Sinai, on average, is actually ten to fifteen percent cheaper than our academic medical center peers in New York. Interesting. Um, So for everything, and we have some products that also work. uh, Basically, build a a high-performance network to support that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the more you can get, uh, drive your population to get care at Mount Sinai as appropriate care, and we'll refer wherever the patient wants. But um, you know, writ large, that's another huge lever of cost. So I think that it's sort of that dual thing. Even if they leave to your point with, well, this is really a benefit. Um, No one's going to complain when it's an and, right? (laughs) You're getting a benefit that happens to be a more cost-effective one at the same time. It's like a
0: win-win for for them and for the employees and for the hospital system. So I think some folks out there might see what Mount Sinai is doing with employers as either a parallel to or even challenging the model of a company like One Medical and its concierge direct primary care. What similarities do you see? And how do you think what you're working on is different?
1: Yeah, so I have, a, one, a lot of respect for One Medical. They're actually a partner of ours, but um, even before they were, I think one of the things I like about them and often use them as an example to explain what we're doing, because it's a lot and most people don't get it, but if you know One Medical, you know they've really changed the way people think about primary care mm-hmm. and taken something that most people either complained about if they ever talked about it and made raving fans of primary care, which is just, again, kudos to them of actually taking something in healthcare that has an atrociously low customer service bar and make people actually talk about their experience. Yeah. Um, so I think there's there's a lot we um, use them as a benchmark for in terms of that, that high service model, the tech-enabled service component, I think mm-hmm. is really critical. Um, I think you know part of why they partnered with us as a health system in general um, and where I think we and I actually explain sometimes our um, essential membership level at Hudson Yards as One Medical Plus is okay. you know thinking about the breadth and depth of what we can provide. So mm-hmm. some of that's you and some of the different specialty care, um, and some of that's around um, we're actually building out, as you mentioned, kind of more of a navigation service to really support patients. I mm-hmm. think a lot of these companies, One Medical included, um, you know, that ultimately end up feeling like a more siloed experience at the sure. end of the day, um, and that can be great if you can kind of stay in that silo. But everyone kind of struggles to connect into the broader healthcare system writ large when those needs come up, yeah. um, and so. That does happen, right? Our goal is certainly to prevent that from happening as much as possible, but I think that's a lot of the power of having that connectivity of the system in general is yeah. that when you have those, those you know, moments where <laughs> you really feel helpless, how do you have someone who can continue to provide um, that frictionless, seamless customer experience? So that's a lot of what we're really trying to build out is take One Medical as an example of you know, looking at all these companies that have started around health systems and the incumbents because they've really failed people mm-hmm. um, and sort of say, well, what if we could do that and sort of replicate some of that service, some of that technology, and still connect you into the broader care system? I think that's um, you know, really powerful um, and certainly a differentiator at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, I think yeah, that makes sense. It seems like maybe one medical in partnering with Mount Sinai was sort of trying to solve the reverse problem of starting as a smaller sort of primary care focus company and then trying to add on some of that network and the breadth. And Mount Sinai is sort of starting from that position and able to kind of provide that from the get go. Yeah. yeah. Um, so thinking about scale and population health in particular, do you think that a population health play like Mount Sinai makes sense? And I guess the way I'm approaching this is you know, Mount Sinai is one health system that primarily operates in one market, although there are you know, some sites in, in other states like Florida. Um, what magnitude impact do you think the work that you and your team are doing here can have on the national healthcare scene?
1: Yeah, it's a great question because I think in many ways, you know, our greatest strength of being able to Cover a lot of the New York area is obviously ultimately one of our weaknesses when you start to think nationally. So, um, the first thing I'd say is you know, we certainly are very conscious of that from the get go. That part of what we want to do is sort of prove this model here. And then, as we and our customers are already asking us to go into different states, you know, think of how do we partner with other like minded, high value health systems um, in other markets. This is not, you know, Mount Sinai trying to take over the world um, or certainly the nation. It's thinking about how do we use this as a model and then bring that model um, through partnerships to to other areas Mm -hmm. um, and using other local health systems I think as the model. so I think that's definitely part of it. And then certainly here, you know, that even applies of thinking about how do we partner with other like-minded, whether it's other companies or mm-hmm. um, other health systems in the area, so that we can really provide good regional coverage. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, it's definitely something that's a balancing act, but sort of the first things first of yeah. let's figure it out how we do it here, um, and then bring that elsewhere um, through you know, different types of partnerships.
0: Yeah, I think that, uh, that sounds about right, especially given the fact that, New York City is such a large healthcare market and such a diverse population. It seems like if you can you know, get something to work here, it would probably be easier to translate to, to other parts of the country. Yeah. yeah. So thinking about measuring outcomes in terms of population health, you know, I think a large part of population health is delivering high quality care while reducing costs. And demonstrating both of those value propositions requires a lot of data, which is something I, I know you spent a lot of your early career in. Um, How does Mount Sinai Health Partners approach sort of collecting, analyzing, and reporting out metrics that both validate the care model externally but can also be used to drive improvement internally?
1: Yeah, so a lot of, I could probably spend a podcast talking about data (laughs) analytics. Um, (laughs) It's an interest of mine. But... To not take all the time talking about that. Um, I think a couple things we do, so to directly answer your question, I mean, it's been interesting, um, both being a leader in the space in New York and even being relatively progressive as a system in the space. Um, we've sort of done a, a hybrid of buying certain things and actually have had to build, frankly, more than we would probably like to, okay. um, in terms of thinking about you know, how do you, um, from like the analytic capability, make sure you have the ability to report out and do that. Um, mm-hmm. It's no small feat when you think of, um, and probably like rule number one of analytics, right, is like garbage in, garbage out. So right. there's a huge issue with, there's a, a lot more data than we ever used to have before. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still not necessarily easy to get or codify. Um, we are not alone, like many health systems where we are on the journey towards um, largely moving towards Epic, so there's a lot of, um, for lack of better words, I'd probably candidly distraction of IT resources almost okay. on um, that I think is systemic in a lot of the industry that a lot of health systems are you know, really focused on trying to get, for better or for worse, like on more of the Epic system. Mm. Um, That takes a lot of time and sort of, but it sort of absorbs a mind share, if you will. Um, And even still, you know, just being on one system um, doesn't necessarily give you (laughs) great interoperability or data access. So um, I think to, to answer that question in a general sense, I think there's a lot of challenges on it. We've invested quite heavily in Uh, resources and technology to support it. Um, And then even when you have all that, to the broader question of like, how do you really track the the value of population health? It's a challenge, whether you have the dynamics of people going in and out of your network and not necessarily being able to control them. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the types of incentives that have been set up to try and track what is value in population health. I think there's a lot of complexity in doing it, even if we're probably at the point Um, where I think we've come a long way in actually being able to report out on it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think what it's taught us, um, or one of the things that showed us is just how complicated it is, even if you (laughs) have the ability to track and manage it, um, to actually pull any one of those levers when anything involving people is complicated. Um, But putting risk-based models and population health filters on that between providers, payers, and patients um, doesn't make it easy, even
0: if you have the data and analytics to finally support it. So I think that's actually a challenge that a lot of companies in this space are facing is, how do we look at the data we have, determine the value, and then use that you know, when we're thinking about winning contracts with uh, employers, with unions, or even uh, with other plans in terms of delivering high-quality care that you know, is more affordable and reduces costs for the system overall. And I think getting to that point, I wonder if you can pick out like, the one or two most pressing needs that you face in your day-to-day work. When it comes to working with data, either gathering it, uh, analyzing it, or you know, doing other types of backend analytics on it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, one of the big issues to that point is even if you can get the right data, it's what's actually meaningful and how do you what kind of impact can you drive and track on that so maybe just to give an example um you, we've been working with one employer that is really interested in trying to reduce their total cost of care so mm-hmm. um even being able to get all that <laughs> data from them to be able to see that knowing we don't um you know control all that yeah. um healthcare spend um and then trying to triangulate that with who's come to see us mm-hmm. um and sort of pick up so where we've sort of tried to you know, wrestle a pretty hairy beast to the ground is looking at what are examples of areas we um, have data and can show sort of some year-over-year trends so we looked at actually physical therapy as one area we were actually able to see um, through different ways we provided care um, and sort of optimizing for people better faster as well as in uh, the in-network spend we were actually in that area alone um, able to bend the cost curve for that employee within one year uh, sorry within for the employer within one year um, just by the net impact of what we were doing so I think some of the challenge of this is trying to get your arms around there's so many issues with data in terms of data integrity and then trying to commingle different data sets but sort of trying to pick off at least (laughs) instead of trying to solve for everything at once. um, Pick off the areas you feel like you can actually control, track, and manage um and that can you know still make a big difference of whether there's things like nps or wait Mm -hmm, time mm -hmm. um you know and parts of cost of care i think there's there's so many different things you can do with data analytics i think we all probably get lost sometimes trying to solve for all of it um, and instead of at least starting where we can start (laughs) and realize there's value in any of that um or just starting somewhere
0: versus solving for all of it to start definitely and i think We've seen this trend and the popularity of data come through, like even in business school curriculums. You know, if I look at Warden, there's so many new courses that look at data, think about how we analyze data, apply it to the healthcare setting, healthcare systems. So I wonder, thinking about MBAs in general, can you tell us a little bit about you know, what roles you see potentially coming down the pipeline as Mount Sinai Health Partners continues to grow from an MBA standpoint?
1: Yeah, so I think um, as a general plug, I think healthcare needs (laughs) needs more smart people. Um, It's a sort of masochistic industry to work in, as you know all too well. But um, I think it is, you know, if you think about things to spend a career on, sort of and the impact you can have. Um, I think there's someone else to to borrow a quote, but that had said, you know, if you can spend a life like making healthcare suck a little less, (laughs) it's probably a (laughs) life well lived. So I think in that regard, you know, some of the things we're doing here are are really interesting and have really interesting. Market impact. So, if you think of you know a lot of startups out there, um, to give a plug for thinking about health systems as well. And I can certainly get into specific roles, but the value of working in a health system, that's certainly not, you know, on the surface, the sexy things that everyone talks about, but mm-hmm. the the size and scale of impact in a market of this, you know, as we talked about, we cover several hundred thousand lives. You know, most startups will never in combination kind of touch that kind of impact. So, yeah. um, you know, you might not get that 2% growth impact can be really significant, you know, versus the 20% stuff that kind of get certain attention. So Mm -hmm. I bring that up in terms of the types of roles because I think some of it's uh, a personality thing of sort of in healthcare in general of sort of seeing the long-term value more than you're gonna get the quick win effect. Um, And certainly that's true inside a health system. But I think in terms of the the types of roles for MBAs, you know, certainly um, my team um, has some and will continue to hire some on product. Um, We just hired someone on our ops team, you know, I think there's a lot of great leadership roles here too, as we're effectively a growth company inside mm-hmm. the system. Um, and then certainly from a broader system perspective, I think there's a lot of different work. Um, a need for you know, people with a strategic mentality who can also take stuff from strategy to execution. So really yeah. leveraging that full spectrum of the MBA mm-hmm. um, more than any particular area. I think there's a lot, of, there's a lot more opportunity and need for that skill set um, than maybe even you know, specific tracks and programs.
0: That's awesome to hear. And I'm sure a lot of folks in our audience will be really interested to kind of explore some of those opportunities more. Do you have a sense of you know, who might be the best person for them to contact or what would be the best way for them to get more information on you know, roles that might be available in the health system in general, or more specifically with uh, the health partners.
1: Yeah, so I'm certainly happy as an alum to be a channel for that. Um, okay. Maybe a setup question, but I'll, I'll take okay. it. <laughs> um, you know, in, in that sense, you know, certainly our team in startup mode is is a little bit more in, in just in time kind of hiring sure. than um, you know hiring 50 people <laughs> a year in advance. Um, but we are constantly growing, so things constantly come up. Um, here and we'll continue to um, and likewise and you know, in some of the areas of population health and our um, strategy and ops team over there is growing. So I think there's a lot of areas you know, if people have specific areas of interest. Happy to connect them or figure out who the right person is or um, you know knowing a lot of MBAs appropriately have that what what should I be when I grow up kind of conversation. The answer is you may never <laughs> never figure yeah. out. But um, you know I think a lot of interesting things here to help sort of build out that um, experience kit that I think is you know whatever you end up doing. Um, part of the value I've found, even having spent a lot of time working around health systems, is there is still even something different of actually getting more inside where healthcare is delivered. Everything ultimately kind of comes together in the provider world. So I yeah. think no matter what you end up doing, it's a really interesting um, experience to, to see hands-on.
0: Yeah, I think as one of our professors would say, it's, there's a lot of value to being in this stuff as opposed to being you know, around this yeah.
1: stuff. Yeah, okay. for sure.
0: Um, and then thinking about some of our MD, MBA colleagues, you know, who will be graduating from medical school as they graduate from business school and then going on to potentially having careers in the clinical world. Can you give us a bit of a sense of what it's like for a clinician who practices in an integrated population health-minded practice like the ones that Mount Santa Health Partners helps to set up?
1: Yeah, I think I would be much more excited to be an MD, MBA now than maybe <laughs> 10, 20 years ago mm-hmm. um, in in a couple ways. I mean, I do think, um, besides the fact maybe you can get your education paid for now, which is pretty nice depending yeah. on where you go. Never um, the, you know the There really does feel like a shift that's occurring in appreciating um, how to make population health feasible for providers. So I think that's something that's probably been not necessarily undervalued, but sort of underappreciated. The burden it typically puts on providers mm-hmm. in when you're kind of trying to live with a foot in sort of the proverbial both canoes, right? So you probably yeah. saw this too. If you're really still in a fee-for-service world, and how the provider experiences population health is effectively, they get you know 50 different quality metrics that they're supposed to report on. And mm-hmm. um, I don't think anyone would say that's really what population health is. Um, but it's been an incredible burden on the providers, sort of feel like. Um, that's what their value is basically based off of. Yeah. Um, knowing that you know, clinical care is obviously much broader than that. So I would be excited to graduate now because I think it's still evolving, but I think there are increasing, including here, uh, places you can go to work where your, your actual p- payment structure really mimics the value system that we're trying to create that's mm-hmm. pretty different than the traditional provider fee-for-service mentality that I think, um, to be blunt, has Perpetuated a lot of bad behavior um, because it creates the incentive of bad behavior. So right. I think you know finding those places that do w- a different compensation model than maybe culturally providers have traditionally gravitated towards. But think about things like salary and bonus versus RVUs and things like that. Um, you know, there's much more to it in terms of how do you actually drive value and lower total cost of care. But I think even things like that that just orient people um, and their own incentive structure to think differently, I think really help. And I don't think those structures have really existed up until relatively recently. So I think it's a great time to consider that um, because I think whether it's social determinants of health or you know, how providers are paid, I think there's increasing appreciation that those are really important to actually um, create the kind of impact we all want.
0: Yeah, so I'm, I'm sure that this is something that is top of mind for you know all of our MD, MBAs. And I think that as they look to residency and think about where they want to go, I have no doubt that this is something that's now sort of in their thought process, and I can tell you that it was not for me when I was applying yeah. to residency six or seven years ago. I think that's a really great shift that's happened uh, in medicine in general. Yeah. Um, so as someone in the Warden community who's been a really trusted advisor for many, many students, like both informally as an alum and also formally through the healthcare management program sort of mentoring network, can you give us some of your sort of pearls or advice for <laughs> folks who are current MBA students at Wharton specifically?
1: Uh, sure. Um, I mean, I think one I would say is, um, which was maybe apropos of the time of year, um, especially for <laughs> people in your class of second year, um, which is probably the eye roll thing, but always a good thing to be reminded of, is sort of try and stay true to what you think you want to do versus mm-hmm. what all your peers are doing, um, meaning, it, uh, to use a good example and not knocking consulting, right, I think it's very easy to get swept up into certain things um, because everyone else around you is doing it um, and that yeah. may make sense for you but I think the, the tried and true advice of like stay true to yourself um, is never more poignant than when you're a second year MBA. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's that's one thing I try and remind people um, in general is that and I think the second piece of that is sort of trying to do your research to really understand what different jobs and career paths actually involve. I think there's certain things that certainly sound appealing and maybe at um, a more senior level are what you think those jobs are, um, but sort of understand, especially as you're looking at jobs right out of school, um, what are you actually doing versus what is the the partner doing type of thing, Mm -hmm. um, I think is really helpful. Not to say that if you want to go down that path, you know, to not think five or 10 years ahead of where you want to go. I think that's always good advice, Um, but realize there are different ways to get there. Um, So don't, you know, I think that's probably the last piece of, which all sounds like generic advice, uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but is, you know, think about, um, think about where you think you might want to go and how do you play for the best option value to get there. So I think what is in that sort of herd mentality or I want to go here, and this sounds good from the brand perspective, is, you know, you do have this, Incredible, if overwhelming, time in your life coming out of an MBA, and certainly a program like Wharton, where you do have a lot of options, and mm-hmm. you effectively have wiped the slate clean, and could almost go and do every anything. Um, that's really exciting and can be overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's rather than necessarily, you know, definitely think about the path you might want to go down, but think about a role a, that can give you lots of option value from a career perspective, um, so that you, if you think you know what you want to do and sort of track yourself, by all means sort of try that out. If otherwise, you're doing something that continues to build a broad skill set will never hurt your
0: career. I think those are really valuable insights, and like you said, particularly relevant, you know, for secondaries who are now starting to think about what life after school will look like. It's been really great chatting with you for the last uh, forty-five minutes or so. I'm really excited that we were able to talk about the really exciting work that you know you're doing and that Mount Sinai is doing, sort of here in the New York um, healthcare space. Before we wrap up, are there any other sort of final thoughts that you'd like you know to talk about with our audience?
1: Um, I think the last thing I may just add is I think I um, was actually talking with a classmate of mine um, this morning about this. I mean, I think the last thing is maybe a uh, which may not sound like an inspirational ending, but um, I mean it this way in the sense that um, as we started the conversation of thinking, you know, ten years ago of the Affordable Care Act. Um, and sort of where the industry is. I think there's a lot of things that are in holding pattern right now in healthcare um, for a variety of reasons. I think conversely, you you think about the past 15 plus years working in this industry at this point, and I think there's always something new and exciting going on. So I think behavioral health is a a huge area. a huge area of growth, there's so many big problems out there still left to solve in healthcare. I think we've come a long way as an industry, but there's so much more to be solved for. So while it might not be, um, you, with some exceptions, uh, a time in healthcare where there's like a clear you know, buzzword, that's the thing to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, I would just encourage um, everyone, even at any point in the career, to kind of think about all the different things that are still happening. And even in areas that might not be as um, top of mind or sort of the buzzword of the moment, how much growth opportunity is still available and sort of pick an area of passion and um, just get after it because there's plenty of work to be done um, in pretty much any area you could think of in healthcare.
0: Awesome, well thanks so much for that insight and it's again been a pleasure. Thanks again. Thank you. Yeah.